The reading for today is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you very much, Amy. Hello again, Arcadia. Good to see you. Welcome. Hope you're doing okay. Please turn to Mark chapter 2. I was out last week. I was in uh, Iowa at the camp that uh, I'm I'm at every summer, teaching at the family camp, and occasionally in the spring they invite me to come and do their couples retreat, and that's what I was uh, doing there. And so um, uh, we had, uh, Redemption Church has essentially two founding pastors. We had one of them here last Sunday morning, Tom Schrader. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited and pleased to announce, some of you will understand why this is exciting, uh, our other founding pastor, the person who actually founded this congregation, um, Justin Anderson, is. Uh, I just scheduled him this week. He's going to be here uh, Sunday, May 10th. That's our mother's gift to you. Justin will be here. I got him before Tempe, which is really cool, so I'm faster than Ricardo. Those of you that know, that's really interesting. So anyway, um, so he's also one of our founding pastors of Redemption. He leads a church in San Francisco. And um, he is, I will tell you, of the two founding pastors, Justin is taller and younger than the one who was here last uh, Sunday. It was great. Uh, I'm, I'm in Minneapolis waiting for my plane and everything Sunday afternoon after the retreat. And I'm getting a lot of texts from people saying, hey, thanks for having Tom come. It was really great to see him. He did a really... Uh, good job. And then one person who was kidding, <clears throat> but still I thought it was funny. And I know Tom would too, but he, he texted me and he said, couldn't you find anybody shorter and older to fill in for you on, on uh, Sunday? And so I saw Tom on Wednesday and I told him that, that, that somebody had texted me that. And this guy is just so quick. He's, just, he's always quicker than everybody else. He goes, yeah, Danny DeVito was not available. So could, and I thought, well, why not? Let's contact Danny and see if he wants to preach here. That would be very interesting. Anyway, so uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today. We have 10 verses, three paragraphs, and three principles. And one of the things that I want you to see now um, is that a couple weeks ago, we started at, at chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, we started chapter 2. And, and, and there's a section, there's a unit that, that Mark uh, very strategically puts together uh, from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse, verse 6. And we're in the middle of that unit now. 
And, and uh, Marcus put it together rhetorically for a particular reason. He wants to see how the tension is building between Jesus and what I would call the professional religious people of the day, the, 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 the Jewish religious regime that was around. So the scribes, the lawyers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all those people. And the tension just begins to build so much so that um, after Easter, when we look at uh, chapter 3, verse 6, we'll see that at the end of this tension building, the Pharisees get together with the Herodians. Those two are sworn enemies, but the enemy of your enemy is my, I don't know, some, there's some saying like that. I don't even know how it goes, but they both don't like Jesus. They get together and they plot to kill Jesus. And so that, that the rest of, of the gospel, of course, is about uh, Jesus's march toward uh, the cross. And so the tension is going to continue to build today. He, he has these beefs with the professional religious people again. And so there are three principles we'll look at, but there is one central, big, focused idea, and that's this. Jesus turns the religious world upside down. And therefore, by implication, some of you are like, oh, he's not going to turn my world upside down, just the religious world. But by implication, that means he turns every one of our worlds upside down. Because every one of us, whether we care to admit it or not, whether we care to see it this way or not, every one of us is religious. Every one of us has some code or some guideline or some principle or some philosophy or some worldview or some school of thought or some cause that we are living by that in our minds is going to take us to fulfillment or heaven or nirvana or bliss or whatever, it is, whatever your definition is of the meaning and purpose of life, you have something that you're trying to live your life by that you think is going to eventually get you there. And it doesn't matter what it is, but that is essentially religion because what you're doing is you're working that system so that you can get to that place. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 it's not about any of that stuff. It's about me, and it's about me reaching down and saving you, and it's about you putting your faith not in a philosophy or in a worldview, but in a person. And that you have to trust the person, Jesus Christ. And so he turns people's worlds upside down by this. And here are the, I'll preview the three main points that we're going we're gonna to look at. In verses 13 and 14, if you want to say it this way, some people would say, Jesus is not a religion. Okay, I understand that. But if you want to put it into this vernacular so that we can understand it, the new religion of Jesus is about a person and not a philosophy or a cause. Very important. Number two, in verses 15 through uh, 17, the new religion is for those who know they are sick not those who are living a lie. We'll explain that. And then number three, the new religion is for relationship and restoration, not rules and rehabilitation. And we'll see that in the last five verses. So let me reread. I know Amy just read it, but we can never read it enough. Let me reread that first paragraph. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, also known as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. So the tax booth is this Greek word that simply translated the office where taxes are collected. And so Levi, Matthew, is a tax collector. And I want you to understand that Levi is a, is a Jew, but he is working for the Roman government. And so other Jews see him as a sellout to the Roman government, especially because tax collectors had a way of getting very, very rich off of the exploitation of the conquered people, the Jewish people. 
And he's a tax collector by the sea, which means that his area where he was collecting tax was he was collecting the tax from the fishermen. And he was collecting the tax on a daily basis. So I just want you to consider this. You go to work every single day, and at the end of the day, before you could go home, you had to stop at the tax booth and, and have the tax collector take your taxes from you. That was just part of the ritual every single day. And so uh, Levi was very well off. He was wealthy, but he was not very well liked at all. There was a cost for him being wealthy. All of the Jewish people and all the fishermen there, they did not like this guy. The, the, the word tax collector in their context would be the same as us saying sexual predator or drug dealer. That would just, we'd just say, oh, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad person over there. And one of the reasons is because what the Romans would do is they would sort of mark off a section in, in every area, region, city, whatever, and and then they would assign a tax collector to that section, and they would say, you need to collect this much from that section, and whatever you collect over this much, you you, you would either get a portion of or you get to keep all of it, and there are no caps to this, so you could make as much money as you could possibly extort from the people in these taxes, and so for those of you that understand this kind of language, it it was a job where it was base plus commission, and there were no limits on how much you could make. And since you weren't in management, you didn't have any responsibility, so it's like a great job, but it came at a very, very high cost. And this is the person that Jesus picks on this day. He picks the very person that would get Jesus in trouble with just about everyone else. So Jesus' poll numbers are going to take a big hit by him picking Levi. But Jesus, we need to remember, doesn't operate based on poll numbers and popularity because Jesus is there to turn the world upside down. He doesn't care about that stuff. Jesus doesn't tailor his philosophy or his teaching or who he is to accommodate, hear this now, flawed human perceptions. He will not accommodate our flawed human perceptions. Uh, One person I read said this, or wrote this, it's a lot easier being Oprah than Jesus. And here's what he was saying. He's saying it's a lot easier to be someone who passes out grace to everybody but never does justice, never does judging, never does confronting, never does speaking of truth. We we are told that Jesus is filled, filled with both grace and truth. And He doesn't operate in grace sometimes and truth other times. He operates both in grace and truth equally at the same time. And what we want for ourselves is that grace part and what we generally want for the other people is the truth part. We want him to judge and give justice to everybody else, but we want grace for ourselves. And Jesus comes and he gives both to to us. He's not somebody who just affirms and never challenges. This is really important. I know I talk a lot about my wife. I really like my wife. Tough. Okay? I really do. And God has blessed me with a wonderful wife, Jackie. And one of the great blessings that he's given me is a woman who not only affirms me when she thinks it's time to affirm me, but she also challenges me and critiques me and speaks truth to me when I need to have truth spoken to me. Why does she do that? Yes. Thank you. Because she loves me. Do you understand that our current culture of love only means affirming me and never challenging me is garbage? That's not genuine love. Jesus loves us. 
And so he not only calls us, as David said a few weeks ago, but then he confronts us in our sin and he begins to conform us to who he is. That's genuine love. And that's what we need from him. And so it is easier to be someone like Oprah rather than Jesus, who is very good at affirming, but very dicey when it comes to actually speaking truth into people's lives. Paul says it this way later on when he writes to Timothy, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know what, in the end times, it's going to be a lot easier for people to go around tickling other people's ears rather than confronting them with the truth. And that's exactly the culture that we're living in today. And but what is it that we really need? What is it we really need? We need truth. We need the truth. When tough times come, what is going to help us is going to be truth and not conciliation. If you're running off the edge of a cliff, what you need is not somebody standing there going, oh, good for you. You're running really fast and you look really good. I know you're going to die, but that's okay. You look so good doing it. We don't need that. We need somebody to grab us and annoy us and bother us and throw us down. Say, no, don't go over there. That's what we need because that's what genuine love is. And that's why we follow Jesus. He will never compromise our safety or our needs or our redemption. Jesus says it this way, I am the truth. He's not pointing to the truth. He's saying, I am the truth. And he says, follow me to Levi. Follow is, is it, it, the, the Greek word means a, on a specific road or pattern. And, and he says, I'm the truth. But he also says, I am the way. I'm the road. I'm the pattern. I'm the truth, I'm the way, and I am the life. And it's not open for discussion. It's about me, not a school of philosophy. And it's about being with Jesus and not just for. And this is a very important distinction. I really want you to hear this. This is hugely important. We live in a culture again, in a culture not only outside the church, but unfortunately also inside the bride of Christ, where people are for Jesus. They're for Jesus, but they're not really with Jesus. And they think that being for Jesus is enough. But the problem with being for Jesus is that essentially you're letting Jesus just be your cheerleader. It's what we just talked about. You're for Jesus as long as he's affirming your agenda, affirming your perception, affirming your reality, and affirming your worldview. But the minute Jesus decides to square you up, look you in the eye, and speak truth to you, the minute that happens, you're like, okay, I'll, I'm, not, I'm for you when you're for me, but I'm not with you when you're trying to help me. And, and we bail. We like Jesus as the compassionate, loving teacher, but we don't like him when he gets in our stuff. And he says, you need to change this. And you need to repent of that. And you need to begin to conform to who I am. If you're for Jesus, you're for him only part of the time. If you're with him, you're with him in everything. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. And it starts really well. He says, I desire to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection. And right there, everybody's going, yes, amen. I want to know Jesus in his power. And I want to know his resurrection. Yes, amen, Paul. You preach it, Paul. You're doing so good, Paul. And then what does Paul say? And I also want to share in his sufferings. Oh, I don't want to share in anybody's sufferings. I don't want to suffer. Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. I'm willing to go to a cross. I'm willing to bear a cross. And then he says, I will do anything so that by any means possible, I will achieve this life. I will achieve this resurrection. I'll suffer. I'll share in his death. That's what it means to be with Jesus. 
The for Jesus stuff is right at the beginning. The with Jesus is all of that. And we have to remember that just like today, everybody at that time was asking the big life questions. Everybody's searching for answers and they want to know. Today, what we do is we look at philosophies and schools of thought and worldviews and whatever the latest, greatest thinking is. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are very happy to help us along with that journey and point us to whatever they think the truth is. Jesus, as I said, is is the only one who does not point us to a teaching, but he points to himself and he says, the answer you're looking for and the truth that you seek is me. Stop searching. And I got to tell you, that, that whole idea that the search is over, stop searching, that's the scariest part for a lot of people. Because for a lot of people, the search is their life. The search is their identity. The search is their excuse from, to keep from coming to the real truth. And so it scares them to hear Jesus say, you can stop searching. You found the truth. It's me. I was with a friend of mine this last week, and we were having a conversation, really interesting conversation about why more people don't pray for the Holy Spirit to, to guide their lives and to show up in their lives and to fill their, their lives. Why is that? Why don't we pray more for the Holy Spirit? And I said, Jad, I think it's because um, um, people are afraid that if they pray that prayer and the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, th- what do they do then? What if they pray that prayer and, and the Holy Spirit somehow doesn't fill them? And show, What do they do then? And he says, I don't think that's what they're afraid of. He says, I think they're afraid that the Holy Spirit will show up and now they're going to be confronted with having to change their life. That's what they're really afraid of. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I think you're right because I identify with that myself. There are times I want to pray and what I do is I pray around the potential truth. Have you ever done that? Praying around the potential. You pray and you tell God how you'd really like things to turn out, but you don't add that part at the end where you say, but not my will, your will, because his will might be really hard and challenging. And you don't want him to answer that prayer that way. And so we're afraid that the search is over. We're afraid for the Holy Spirit to show up. I've brought this up before because it just drives me crazy and I'm up here with the mic, so I'm going to bring it up again. It's, it's Deepak Chopra. Some of you guys know who he is. Here, here you go. Here's what he says. I am, this is maybe 10 years ago he said this. I am spending my life searching for truth, and I join all others on this essential quest. Okay, I'm with you. Then he says this. But I refuse to follow or believe anyone who claims to have found the truth. Anyone who claims to, to have the truth or to know the truth cannot be trusted. Really? Then why are you searching? What is the point of the search if when you find what you're searching for, you won't believe it or trust it? I'm sorry, but that's just a little bit goofy. And I'm being kind there. Do you know why? Here it is. Because the search is his life. The search is his identity. The search is his savior. The search is his excuse. The search is his career. The search is his revenue stream. That's why. It's that simple. And those who are looking for the excuse and want to stay on the, church, uh, on the search, what they do is they go and they embrace deep. Oh, Deepak, yeah, yeah, that's good. I never have to be confronted with the truth now because he won't let it happen. You see, those who reject Jesus have two challenges, two major challenges. Number one, what they choose to believe in and put their faith and trust in rather than Jesus takes way more faith and trust than to actually believe Jesus. You understand that? That was me for 27 years. I trusted in myself. That's not a smart thing to do. I've got no power over anything. 
yet I was trusting in myself. I got it figured out. I know what's right. And then the second challenge is this. Most people who, who reject Jesus have no idea what they're really rejecting. They're rejecting a false image or paradigm or construction of Jesus because they've been listening to culture and they've been listening to the talking heads and they've been listening to professors and they've been listening to teachers and they've been listening to all these people that don't want you to go to Jesus and all these people who don't know who Jesus really is and all these people who don't, are against Jesus, they've been listening to them and so what they're rejecting is something that isn't even really Jesus and again, that was me for 27 years. When I found out who Jesus really is, I began to realize I've been rejecting something that isn't true. I've been been rejecting this, this picture of Jesus that isn't true. And frankly, I would reject that now as well. I understand that. But you can't reject the real Jesus because the real Jesus is full of truth and grace. Full of both. And He's the one who reconciles us to God. So Levi follows. Now why does Levi follow? Because he knows. We know by now in the book of Mark that Jesus' reputation is spread. Levi knows that he's a rabbi of good repute and that he's doing all of these wonderful things. So he knows who Jesus is. And second of all, Levi is a Jewish male. So at one time he did not make the cut to be able to follow a rabbi for the rest of his life. At one time in his life, Levi was told, you are not smart enough. You're going to have to go and find another business to do. You can't be in this rabbi school anymore. And now he's getting something that he never thought he would get, a second chance with a rabbi. And so he knows Jesus is the one. And Jesus is turning the world upside down. Or you might say it this way. Jesus is actually turning the world right side up. We're the ones that are all upside down right now. And so that's the first one. This new religion is about a person, not a philosophy or cause. Here's the second one. The new religion is for those who know they are sick, not living a lie. Verses 15 through 17. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, went to his disciples. Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. That word sinners there at the end literally means, it's a very strong word in the Greek, it literally means the detestable and and depraved people. The detestable and depraved people. And you're going, wait a minute, there's tax collectors and sinners. You said tax collectors were bad. Well, the way the Jews saw them was that the tax collectors were a detestable and depraved all their own. And then there were the others, the prostitutes, the thieves, the abusers, the the dealers, the gossipers. And both groups represented the scourge of the Pharisees because both groups flouted the law of Moses. And according to the Mosaic interpretation of the Mosaic, I'm sorry, according to the Pharisaic interpretation of the Mosaic law, Jesus was supposed to keep clean by staying away from these people. But he's hosting them and he's eating with them. Jesus chooses a new path. A new path that the Pharisees could not and would not understand. Jesus chooses a path of personal purity and yet rolling his sleeves up and getting involved and showing compassion and showing mercy and showing love. Jesus does not isolate himself from the culture, nor does he capitulate to the culture but rather he does exactly what he calls you and I to do. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. 
Maintain your personal purity, but go into the world. You need to be salt and light. You need to be flesh on flesh with the sinners so that they can hear the gospel and they can taste the salt and they can see the light. And consider this, if a Pharisee has a dinner party, do you think the sinners and the outcasts and the tax collectors are going to show up? There's no way. That tells us that there is a love and winsomeness and compassion about Jesus that was not present in any of these religious people, these self-righteous people of their day. And Jesus is eating with these guys. That is, that is especially irksome to the Pharisees because eating is, is, is seen in their day as an act of pure intimacy, compassion, fellowship, partnership, neighborliness, love. It, it's, it's seen as, as, as being a part of those people. You see, Jesus is with us and not just for us. That's why we can say with great conviction that we need to be with Jesus because He was willing to be with us. He's with us at our worst. And He's willing to take that hit. He's willing to take that cost. And of course, we always have to ask this question. If if the prostitutes and drug dealers and sexual predators and tax collectors, if they showed up at church today, would we welcome them? Or are we in our self-righteousness, are we going to shun them? So he talks about those who are sick and then what I would say, those who are living a lie, those who are well. And I'll explain why I would say that. Those who are sick, and I know some of you right now are going, gosh, that word sick, detestable and depraved. A lot of you are saying, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly not detestable. I mean, come on. But now we have to do some really hard work. We have to define the standard. What is the standard for detestable? Read your Bible. Read Scripture. The standard for detestable is you are either holy and perfect as God is holy and perfect or if you've even sinned one time, you're detestable. You're depraved. And we've all sin- we, we all admit we're not perfect. We are the detestable. We, we often think that there's Jesus and then there's good people and then there's bad people. No, 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 no. There's Jesus and everybody else. And we are all a part of of the detestable. I know some of you are like, I thought this was a church of the good news, but to get to the good news, we've got to give you the bad news, and this is the bad news. We're all detestable. We're all, it, one friend of mine says it this way, if sin were blue, we would all be Smurfs. You're a Smurf. I'm a Smurf, okay? We just get past that. But it's a problem because, because what we want to do instead is what, what people call the social comparison process. You can look this up on the internet sometime if you want. The social comparison process. We, we say, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm, not det- I'm certainly not detestable. I mean, look at that person over there. They're certainly worse than me. I'm okay by comparison. We can always find somebody who's worse than us. That's the beauty of the social comparison process. God says, no, compare yourself to Jesus. That's the only comparison you're allowed to make in this particular case. Even those of us who have to find somebody like Charles Manson or Hitler, I'm not detestable. At least I'm not Manson. I'm not a serial killer. That's a problem. God calls us to holiness and perfection, and the only way we can do that is by embracing and accepting Jesus and and being with Him and following Him. Paul says in Galatians 6, For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. If you think you're something, if you think you're anything, you're deceiving yourself. I'm deceiving myself. And you all know the answer to this question. Who's your favorite person to lie uh, to? Who's my favorite person to lie to? It's me. Your favorite person to lie to is you. We are lying machines. And the person we most enjoy deceiving is ourselves. 
Paul calls us out on that. And then that word well. This, well, this word well, the Greek uh, word that we translate as well, is, is the word that helps us to understand that in this paragraph, Jesus is at what I would say in our contemporary culture, he is at his snarky best. He's being snarky here. He's being ironic. He's using satire here. He's, he's, he's being very, very ironic. Well is a word that relates to a person's perceived power. Remember earlier in this message, I said the problem is with how we perceive reality. And the person who has perceived power is, is, is here's, if you have a lot of money, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I got money. I don't need to worry about God. I don't need to worry about anything. I got money. I'm successful in business. I have a good romantic life. I can get men or women or whatever it is. I have networks and prestige and position and status. I have all those things. You are well by your own power and you perceive because of that temporary power that you don't have a need for a savior. The problem, of course, is that's fleeting. Just think back five years ago to what you thought made you well then. It's not what's making you well today. You've moved on to something else because you're older and more sophisticated now. I've been, I've been studying, I, I love the internet, I, I've been studying umbrellas. Anybody studying umbrellas lately? Okay, check this out. In Egypt, 3,000 years ago, umbrellas were the status symbol. If you had an umbrella in Egypt 3,000 years ago, it meant you had money, it meant you had power, it meant you had status, position, and influence. You were somebody if you were walking down the street with an umbrella, whether it was raining or not. You were the epitome of the Arcadian hipster if you had an umbrella in Egypt 3,000 years ago. And if you had an umbrella, essentially what you could say is, hey, I got an umbrella. I don't need God. I don't need any help. That's silly, right? We see the folly in that. Do you understand that God looks at the stuff that we put our faith in today and he goes, those are just more sophisticated, technically advanced umbrellas. He says the stuff that you're putting your faith in today, the the stuff that you find your status and your importance and your identity in today, whether it's sexual ethics or or politics, the identity of politics or, or, or environment, whatever it is, whatever that is that you're putting your identity in today, he says, that's folly, it's silly. And then that word sick is a very important word too. Jesus uses this word sick specifically to attach to sin. Sin and sick go together, and the word sick literally means disordered or dis-ease, disordered. You see, sin disorders creation. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and there was a created order, and then Genesis 3 hits, and sin disorders all of that. It disorders the creation. It disorders us. It disorders our relationships with each other and with God and with, with ourselves. And when you and I finally admit and recognize that we are disordered by our sin, that's when we come to Jesus. That's why so many people, it's interesting, we live in a culture now, we're the most depressed and most medicated culture in the history of the world. You understand that? And at the same time, we're the most successful and the wealthiest. Isn't that odd? The reason for our depression is because of the darkness of evil and wickedness and sin. We have people all over the world who are depressed and discouraged and frustrated and angry. And it's because they have gone down this this, this dark hole of whatever sin it is that they've given their life to, an addiction or a disordered sexual ethic or a bad relationship or whatever, and they're depressed and they're unhappy and they're upset. 
And, and we run to them. Even in the church, unfortunately, we run to them. And what we want to fix is we want to fix their depression. And we want to fix their anger. And we want to fix their, their, their discomfort. And what they really need fixed is their sin. We'd rather not touch their sin. And they would rather we didn't touch their sin. They want their sin and they want happiness. But they're unhappy and they're depressed because of their sin. And the truly loving thing, again, is to deal with their sin and not with the symptoms of their sin. It's very interesting. Theologically, we don't want to categorize sin. But in order to be able to talk about sin and help us understand things, sometimes we have to put things into categories. A couple months ago, I was reading about how one guy said, you know, there's two essentially big categories of sin. One is, one is sins of rebellion. So it's the person who is, is into hedonism and licentiousness and debauchery and shamelessness and, and, and recklessness. So there's sin of rebellion. But then there's sin of self-righteousness. The sin of self-righteousness. Those who are into performing and people-pleasing and legalism and judgmentalism and pride and those things. Both fall short of the glory of God. Both are a manifestation of sin. And Jesus went to the cross to die for both of those categories of sin. And both are broken. And we think sometimes that there's a continuum of self-righteousness to rebellion and Jesus stands in the middle of it. No, He doesn't. He stands completely outside of it. He's above it, below it, beside it, on the outside of it, saving all of it. But what's really interesting, what's really ironic here is while Jesus in other places deals with the rebellion sins, here he, is, he specifically sees the self-righteous professional religious people as the ones who are living the lie. They are the ones that he calls well in a very snarky way. They're sicker than anyone and they don't know it. Those who are well have no need of a physician. He's being very, very snarky. He's turning their world upside down. You see, self-righteousness is very deadly. We need to grab hold of that. Self-righteousness is the perception that, that, that one is not sick, one is not in need. They're the one that's living the lie. You and I have been told ever since we can remember that the key to, to defeating cancer is what? Early detection. Early detection. That's the most important thing you can do. At my old church, uh, the church I was at before this, Paradise Valley Community Church, I had a very, very good friend. Guy was older than me, Larry Hampton. His son and I, one of his sons, Steve and I, also became very good friends. But Larry was, about seven years ago, Larry was 60 years old. And one day he woke up, he couldn't move. He and his wife Janet were supposed to be going up to um, uh, Sholo. They have a place up there. He could not, literally could not get out of bed. They finally called the paramedics. They took him to the emergency room and they came and eventually told him, they said, your body is just racked with cancer. There's cancer everywhere and you are dying. And, and it was too late for him. One of Larry's problems, if you want to call it that, is that Larry had this incredibly high tolerance for pain. He was tough. And he admitted later on that he had been living with excruciating pain for more than a year but just didn't want to do anything about it. He could get along just fine until one day the pain was so bad that it paralyzed him. And less than four weeks later, he was dead and we were doing his memorial service. I was there with him in the hospital when he passed away. He needed early detection if he was going to have a chance. And we understand that about cancer. And yet, with our spiritual lives, 
Many walk around with the cancer of self-righteousness. It's in there. It's breeding. And it's causing us pain. And yet we deny it. We are the walking dead. AMC's got nothing on the self-righteous who are the walking dead. And so we need to diagnose our illness. We need to quit living the lie. Spiritual wellness is not dependent on who you are and what you can do. It is dependent upon who Jesus is. Many people who have cancer, you know, they have cancer and we don't even know it. They look fine on the outside, but inside they're, they're deteriorating. They can still do some things and we don't even realize it and they've been able to hide it from us. Jesus is saying self-righteousness does the same thing with your spiritual life. It hides the detestable and the depraved that you have on the inside. We are way sicker spiritually than we are physically. And so we need to understand that Jesus is for those who recognize that sin and understand it and acknowledge it, not for those who think they're well, think they're okay, to think that in their perceived power they've got this wired. Last one, number three. This new religion is for relationship and restoration, not rules and rehabilitation. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will, and, and they will fast in that day. This is not a trick question. Who is the bridegroom in this little story? It's Jesus. It's a very important point. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old. And a worse tear is made. No one puts new wineskins into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And he backs up this story of the, of the wedding feast with two little parables that he tells there. Now, I have a little quick little disclaimer. I'm, I'm just here to tell you, there's really nothing terribly wrong with rules and rehabilitation. They're not bad things. They're good things, but they are not ultimate things. And so when we place our faith in rules and rehabilitation, we're missing the point. What we need to do is we need to recognize that we need more than rules and more than rehabilitation. Our need is for Jesus who restores all things. And he's talking now to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect, a Jewish religious sect that had been around now at this time for about 200 years. They got started somewhere around the Maccabean Revolt between 160 and 178 uh, BC. So they'd been around a couple hundred years. And the name Pharisee literally means the holy ones. Now think about that. We're starting a new religious sect and we're going to call ourselves the holy ones. There might just be a tad bit of arrogance in that. And I'm not here to say, listen, what they were trying to do is a good thing. They wanted to live for God, but they were missing the point, and Jesus calls them out on that. Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. This is an Old Testament God illusion again. He's saying, I'm God. It's another way of, he, of him saying, I'm Yahweh, I'm the Lord. We, we didn't quite at this time have um, a theology of the Messiah as the bridegroom to the church worked out yet, but we do know that the Jewish people, the Israelites, saw Yahweh, God the Father, as the bridegroom of Israel. And so when Jesus says that, there's this great giant sucking sound with all the religious people. They're going, he's claiming to be God. He can't do that. And he goes further and he says, he says, listen, why would you fast during the wedding feast when the bridegroom is here? 
You see, fasting is a discipline that reminds us of our need for God. But if God's there, why would you have to fast? And he uses the picture of the wedding feast, which I think is beautiful, which most of us don't understand, because it really drives the point home. Let me tell you something. We have a very young congregation here. I'm doing a lot of weddings at Redemption Arcadia, and I love doing that. Premarital weddings, all that stuff. But if we did weddings the way they did in first century Jewish culture, that is the only thing that I would be able to do at Redemption Arcadia because weddings lasted for seven days. There was a ceremony for about 10 minutes, and then bam, it was party time for 6.99 days. And there were four things you were required to do at the party. Eat, drink, sing, and dance. Eat, drink, sing, and dance. Eat. You never fasted during the wedding. When the bridegroom is there, you're eating, you're drinking, you're dancing, you're singing. Can we do that in church? Yes. Jesus calls us to this celebration. He says the bridegroom's going to be removed. There's an allusion to him being carried away for the crucifixion, but he says, I'm here with you now. Why would you want to hang out with a rule fasting when you can hang out with the bridegroom? That's just silly. We are so religious that we often miss the point. Amen? In our religion, we miss God. See, these people have decided that no matter what, the rules are more important than relationships, that rules are more important than people. Jesus says, listen, the law is good. I created the law. But remember, I created the law. I'm the author of all things. Why would you hang out with a law instead of hanging out with me? I'm here. Be with me. Relationships are where it's at. And he doesn't condemn fasting. This is a big, you know, Jesus is condemning fasting. No, he's not condemning fasting. Jesus fasted. He was a master faster. He was a great faster. He fasted himself. He's not saying fasting is bad. He's saying you've misprioritized fasting. He's getting our priorities straight. He's turning the world right side up. And then he comes to these parables. The untrunk cloth and the wineskin parables are connected for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're connected because they're absolutely ridiculous things. He's stating the obvious by saying this. Have you ever had a flat tire? Oh, I guess not. Okay, so <clears throat> you run over a nail, boom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you got a flat tire, okay? You would never go into your car Unhatch, un, unlatch your steering wheel in your car and then try to put it on where your flat tire was, right? That's just ridiculous, right? That's just so stupid that you don't even know why I brought it up. This is how stupid these things are. Sewing an unprepared, untreated piece of cloth on an old garment, that was that stupid in their day. Putting new wine into old wineskins, that was that stupid in their day. Nobody did it. They're going, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Of course we wouldn't do that. And he says, but that's what you're trying to do with me. You're trying to keep all of your rules and, and still have a little bit of me. It doesn't work. Two things these parables point out. Number one, Jesus is never an add-on to an old agenda or an old strategy. He is not an addendum. He is the thing. And second of all, those who are self-righteous are so enamored with themselves, they are totally unprepared to be able to hear the new word. That, that word unshrunk it literally means untreated and not prepared. Religious, self-righteous people are untreated by the realities of the world because they're so busy distancing themselves from the realities of the world. Sinners get reality. 
You talk to somebody who's steeped in sin, they know they have a problem. There's not a hint of self-righteousness in them. They understand they, uh, how the world really is. They understand depravity. And they even know that self-righteousness is a horrible and depraved manifestation of, of, of sin as well. They know that. They can smell the stink of self-righteousness on anybody. Consequently, the self-righteous are never prepared for the new word because they claim they have the word. The self-righteous are the least likely to listen to who Jesus is. And then the whole wine skin thing. The wine is destroyed. That word destroyed literally means the wine dies, which is exactly what you and I do when we try to just add Jesus to whatever it is that we've got going on in our lives. People die when we try to afflict the addition of other things into the gospel. It's Galatians. Paul says at the beginning of Galatians, I'm astonished that you've been so quickly swayed by another gospel that's not even a real gospel at all because it depends on things other than Jesus. You're trying to do Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus Sabbath and Jesus plus the the, the Mosaic law. That's not the gospel. This is going to burst the skins if you try to do that. And that word burst is extremely violent. Jesus is using very violent language and violent imagery here because he's trying to pierce that stiff spiritual Teflon of the self-righteous. Jesus is saying, you cannot make who I am and what my mission is fit your agenda or your perception. I am a whole new covenant. I'm a whole new understanding. I'm a whole new way. I'm a whole new life. It is not a rehabilitation of the old, but it's a restoration of the holy. It's a restoration of the holy. It's setting things back to the way they're supposed to be. Jesus turns the world right side up. Jesus is not a new cause or a, or, or a new school of thought. He is the truth. Too many of us simply want to add Jesus to what our worldview is and who we are. And, 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 and It's like our lives are a mess, but we think that you know, if we go to the spiritual chiropractor Jesus and he just gives us a little adjustment, we can go on our way and we'll feel better about things. I just need a little Jesus sauce to add to this and I'm going to keep all of this away from Jesus but just this little area that I'm having trouble if I can just get some magic Jesus dust sprinkled on that I'll be fine. And doing that only adds to our frustration and to the destruction in our lives. We have to be all in with Jesus because he's all in with us. It's the person who says, you know, I tried Jesus. I tried faith. I tried Christianity. It didn't work. It's, it, it didn't work because you got it wrong. You want to keep your old life and just add a little bit of Jesus. You're trying to put unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You're trying to put new wine into old wineskins. You're trying to take your steering wheel and put it in the wheel well. It doesn't work. Jesus comes along and says, you need to be 100% completely all in with me. With me, not for me. I have to be not just a thing, but the focus, the center, the life, the way. This is where salvation and the abundant life is. And it should be our prayer that our body of Christ here and every body of Christ would see it this way, that we would would pray for Jesus' kingdom to come and for the Holy Spirit to, to fill us and to be ready to be called, but also confronted and conformed to his image because that is what the kingdom looks like. It is the restoration of the holy, not a rehabilitation of something that's not quite right. That's who Jesus is, and I call us all to him in a new and a fresh way, and maybe even for your first time today. Let me pray, and Josh will come and and lead us into our time of, of reflection. God, thank you. 
that you speak the truth to us. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and that you would fill us with your spirit so that we could be all in with you by the power of your resurrected son, we pray in his name, amen.